one of the things that I've discovered in life is that people love great endings. Now, we like good beginnings, but we love great endings. If a movie starts out really, really good and about halfway through turns into a mess, well, we don't like it that much. If, on the other hand, the movie starts out kind of a mess and it gets its act together and we stick with it and it ends great, we're like, man, that was a great movie. Think about your, your favorite sports teams. Wouldn't you prefer a great ending to a good beginning? Yeah, I, I mean, I, I started today to, to show the great endings in sports history, but I was afraid that the Kentucky fans wouldn't want to see Christian Leitner four or five times. Right? I got an amen on that. But it's true that that great endings can salvage even poor stories. Here's what I want to do today to kind of get us thinking about great ending is I I want to play a little game with you. All right. And so I, I, I went online and I found some of the greatest last lines of movies. And we're going to put those lines on the screen and then I want you to get a partner or Two or three, not, not, not eight or nine, all right? Just in group time, but a partner or two. And I want you to share what you think the movie is that this line comes from, all right? Now, not loud enough that everybody around hears you, because really, this, this is a competition, right? You want to be right and nobody else to be right. This is what you want, okay? So here we go. Here's the first one we're going to put up. Lewis, I think this is the beginning of a beautiful friendship. There's not a lot of sharing going on out there. A lot of brank stares. All right, somebody yell it out. What is this? Not nobody. Casablanca. What are you talking about? There it is. How many of you ever seen that movie? Thank you. There's a dearth right here. Thank you. Charles knew it. Thank you, Charles. I got, how many of you got that right? Knew that? I see Miss Travis in the back. Good, good, good for y'all. Good for y'all. All right. This may not be as successful as I intended, but that's okay. Here's the second one, all right? Roads. Where we're going, we don't need roads. Share with your friends before you yell it out. Explain the rules once, and Chris Baga thinks he can just jump right over them. All right, since it's already been out of the bag, this is Back to the Future, right? Have you ever seen Back to the Future? Look at that. Now now we're getting somewhere, all right? Here's the third one. We've only got about 20 of these. It's all right. We don't have that many. That's right. That's right. Attaboy Clarence. All right, we're good. All right. All right, somebody tell me what it is. It's a wonderful life. There they are. Isn't that sweet? Don't you just now feel like it's 20 degrees outside and need your hot cocoa and all that? All right, here's the here's fourth one. I'll go home, and I'll think of some way to get him back. After all, tomorrow is another... So you can't control it. Some of you are yelling it. Can't control it. I'm not even through reading this. Is like, this is like Jeopardy. Wait till I finish reading before you ring in. All right. What is this? This is... I want the win. See, some of you thought the last line was one that we can't put up in church. All right? About how Rhett feels. All right? Number five, the greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world he didn't exist. 
And like that poof, he's gone. Isn't that a good quote, though? I mean, whether you like the movie or not, it's a good quote. Anybody know this one? What? No. It's not Harry Potter, although Twilight might be more appropriate. Now, what is Usual Suspects? How many of you have seen that movie? Oh, it's a good movie. All right. Here's the last one. I'll be right here. Melissa Meadows couldn't contain herself. I just want you to know that when this movie was shown and I was a young boy watching it in the movie theater for the first time. What is this one? E.T. I was an emotional mess. I can count on one hand how many movies I have cried at in the theater. The first one was E.T. All right. He's getting on that spaceship and she gives him the flower. Mm. All right. Great endings, right? They make a difference. Today we're going to talk about, we're in this series on Jesus Tweets, and today we're going to finish this series talking about what is perhaps, well not perhaps, it is the greatest ending that has ever existed. If you've got your Bibles, turn with me to the book of John, chapter 19. John, chapter 19. Here's where we're going to pick up. Jesus is on the cross. He is in his final moments. In fact, he has already gone through the part where he has looked down at John and said, John, this is your mom. And to his mother, Mary, Mary, this is your son, implying that they're going to take care of each other. He's already had that moment when he looks at these uh, Roman soldiers and the Jewish people that had brought this about. And he says in a manner that is just unbelievable for a man who is in the physical shape that he is. When he looks at them and he says, Father, forgive them. They don't even know what they're doing. He's at the point where his breasts are getting shallow, where his strength is waning. He has already looked to the sky and quoted the psalm and said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? As he's hanging there, it tells us, starting in verse 28, after this, when Jesus knew that everything was now accomplished, that the Scripture might be fulfilled, He said, I'm thirsty. Now, now, let's stop for just a second. Some of you have heard sermon series or sermons or seen descriptions of the last words of Jesus from the cross, right? And you think about the theological weight that are in those. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Into your hands I commit my spirit. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And even the one we're going to talk about in a minute, it is finished. This seems like a strange final word to put in Scripture, doesn't it? I'm thirsty. I believe that especially in the day they were writing, that they didn't put anything in to be extra. They, they didn't have space just laying around. Or they didn't have a word requirement from their professor that required them to add fluff. 
And so if it's there, it's important. So why is it even there? Well, here, here are a couple of things that I think are at play here. First of all, I think it does show us the humanness of Jesus. He was thirsty. He was hurting. He is not invincible in his human body. And in the moment, what is actually happening there is he is thirsty. But actually, I think there's something else that's in play because read what's right before that. What does it say? In order that the scripture might be fulfilled, he said. Right? That's what the Bible says. That's not what I said. It says it right there that the scripture might be fulfilled. He says, I am thirsty. You see, in John 19, 28, we have a recitation of what is happening. It tells us in Psalm chapter 69, verse 21, that the one that would suffer, the one that would die, the Messiah would be thirsty and would be given this bitter drink. Look what happens in the next verse. A jar full of sour wine was sitting there, so they fixed a sponge full of sour rum, vinegar, and hyssop, and held it up to his mouth. This is, before we get to the last, the, the next phrase, I just want you to see the absolute sheer, laser-like focus of Jesus, even in his final moments of human strength. From what we can tell, there was one prophecy that had yet to be fulfilled in that moment. And it was an obscure reference to a psalm about a drink. And Jesus, on the cross, in that moment, says, I'm thirsty. It seems like just kind of a throwaway phrase, I'm thirsty, that we... You know, in my house, when someone says, I'm thirsty, they get greeted by one of the other children saying, hello, thirsty. Y'all do that at your house? Do you know that's funny, like the first time, but like when it happens for the 38th time that day, my name's not thirsty, it's Maddie. Well, hi, Maddie. It's, it's incessant, all right? Just a throwaway thing. But Jesus is intentionally Fulfilling the prophecy. And only after that does it say in the next verse that he says, when he had received it, he says, it is finished. Bowing his head, he gives up his spirit. You see, a lot of times we separate those two or we don't talk about much of the first one. But the truth is, Jesus was in a moment completing, finishing, doing everything he could to make sure it was accomplished. And the phrase, and some of you know this, the phrase it is finished is actually just one word in the original language. It is called to telestai. It's just one simple word. Well, not so simple, but it's one word. And it can be translated a variety of ways. It can be translated as to end or to complete or to discharge a debt. In fact, there, there were really three ways in the New Testament times in Jesus' day that people would use that phrase or that word to tell us that. One is um, 
When a master gave a servant a project to do, they would go out into the field, they would work on the project, they would handle the project, they would finish the project, and only when the finished project was done, the servant would walk back into the master, he would stand before him, and he would say, to Telestai, it's over, it's finished, it's complete. Another way that it was used in their time was when a merchant would would take a, a, a debt and he would have the debt written out literally and he would have handwritten it and they had stamps in that day and he would take it and he would stamp it as paid in full and he would speak to the person across from him that owed the debt. He would say to Telestai, it's done, it's finished. The last way it was used was actually in a religious way. The Jewish priest of that day, when someone brought them a lamb to be sacrificed, brought an animal to be sacrificed, they would look at the lamb. They would inspect the lamb because Scripture, the the Old Testament, the law said it had to be a certain way without any blemishes. And they would look at it. And when they finished looking at it, if everything was just right and it was the sacrifice that was acceptable for that moment, they would say to Telestai. It's complete. It's right. So the question is, which of the three ways is Jesus intending for us to understand his cry of to from the cross? And my answer to that is yes. It's all three. I mean, think about the theological rich nature he has in there of saying it is completed. I have finished what the, the task was for my life. I have done what he has called me to do. In fact, um, there, there's some scholars that have looked through the Old Testament prophecies about the Messiah. And they have yet to find one that Jesus did not fulfill, which is good because that would kind of be a problem for us, right? And they focused on 48 major prophecies of the Old Testament, and Jesus completed them perfectly. And here's what's interesting about that. There's a scholar named Dr. Louis Lapidus, and he was interviewed in a book by Lee Strobel. And he said to him, well, couldn't that just be coincidence or someone that was just trying to make it work? Lapidus said, well, first of all, some of the things are things he couldn't control, like where he was born and who he was born to and where his hometown would be. He, how many of you chose where you were born? Good. All right. We had a couple of youth that did. Apparently, that's pretty amazing. We'll talk to your parents about that later. All right? We don't choose where we're born, right? Here's the thing that's interesting. So Lapidus said, of all those prophecies, and just to give you an idea, I have a list if I can find it here. Here it is. Here's a list of some, just a few of them. He would be born of a virgin in Bethlehem. He would enter Jerusalem as a king on a donkey, would be rejected by the Jews, would die a humiliating death, would be sold for 30 pieces of silver, would be betrayed by a friend, would have his disciples forsake him, would be accused by false witnesses. He would be spit upon. He would be silent before his accusers. He would be wounded and bruised, hands and feet pierced, crucified with thieves, prayed for his persecutors. People ridicule him, have his clothes taken off and lots cast for them. He would have a forsaken cry. He would be given gall and vinegar on the cross. His Bones would not be broken. He would commit himself to God before dying. His side would be pierced. There would be darkness over the land when he died. He would be buried in a rich man's tomb. He would rise from the dead, ascend into heaven, and would sit at the right hand of the Father. That's a few. And this is the statistic. This is amazing. Somebody figured out what would it take? What would be the coincidence that somebody fulfilled all of the prophecies about the Messiah perfectly? And they figured out just for the 48 major ones, 
this isn't all the little ones, the 48 major ones, that the chance of that is one in a trillion, 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 trillion. Those are small odds. Okay? That's like hitting the lottery five weeks in a row for the jackpot. Not that anybody plays the lottery. I'm just talking about it. When Jesus on the cross says, it is finished, he is saying, I have done everything that the master, my father, has asked me to do to tell us that. But he's also saying that you and I had a debt that had to be paid for sin. And just like that merchant would have stood across from someone who had a debt that was owed and stamped it and said, to tell us die, it's done. Jesus looked at us and the sin debt that you and I owe because we have chosen our own way to go away from the Father, from Adam all the way down to each individual in this room. We have chosen to sin. Jesus looks at us on the cross and when he says it is finished, he is telling us that for those of us who would be believers in him that would come afterwards, it's done. The debt is paid. And he's also serving as Hebrews will describe him as our high priest. He's describing that the fact that he is on the cross, he is the perfect lamb, the perfect specimen, the one that is without blemish. He is the acceptable sacrifice. He is declaring as the priest would in the temple when sacrifices came to tell us die, it is complete. It is right. But here's what I love most about that word. About the scripture, it is finished. And we have to talk a little grammar for a minute. Anybody okay with that? I hope so, because we're going to anyway. Sorry. Let me just ask a question. How many of you are grammar nerds out there? Let me just, I'm included in that. That people, when people misspell stuff, it hurts you. Got a couple of those, all right? How many of you out there are like, if I never saw anything else to do with grammar in my life, I'd be okay? Thank you. Amen. Good to see you. We're going to talk about grammar for just a minute, all right? In the English language, we have three tenses of verbs. Stick with me, all right? We have past. We have, we have, look at that. Grammar people all around. Past, present, and future. Well, in Greek, they don't. They have additional tenses. Isn't that good? Aren't you glad you didn't take Greek? Amen. So you got to learn all those. Well, in Greek, there is a particular tense. I won't give you the aorist or the imperfect, the pluper. I won't give you all that. All right. In Greek, there is a tense called the perfect tense. And here's what it means. Okay. The perfect tense meant that there is an action that occurs at this moment that has ongoing effects forevermore forward. An action happens here that has forevermore effects going forward. Can anybody guess what tense it is finished is in? It's the perfect tense. Jesus declared it is finished and there would be ramifications for the rest of eternity. So that means for you and me, there are ramifications today. And really, there are ramifications for three of the biggest questions that we deal with on a regular basis. You see, 
Because it is finished, we have some assurance, some anchors that we can hold to, some things that we can go deep into our lives and hold on to when things get difficult. Because Jesus died on the cross and because of what would come after in his resurrection, we can anchor our lives to some facts about the three most difficult things we all deal with. Futility. Failure. In the finality of our lives. You see, because it is finished, our lives are not futile. Amen? I mean, if there's no Jesus, guess what? There's no hope for any kind of life that means anything. I I read this week about a, a, a cemetery in San Antonio, Texas, that has a gravestone for Grace Llewellyn Smith. I don't know Grace Llewellyn Smith. You probably don't either. If you do, you can testify to this. If not, just listen. This is her gravestone. Sleeps, but rests not. Loved, but was loved not. Tried to please, but pleased not. Died as she lived alone. Anybody want that on yours? No. But here's the truth, though. As you read it, it, it makes me wonder about her. Who was this woman? What, what do you mean she sleeps but didn't rest? What, what was on her mind so much? What, what caused her so much anxiety? What, what do you mean she loved but wasn't loved? What, what did she do wrong in loving? What, what was the problem with her loving? What, what do you mean she tried to please but, but please none? I mean, what, what was she attempting? I can't help but think how in our lives, we we may not have that on our gravestone and we may have people in our lives that care about us, but the truth is without Jesus, without the it is finished statement, we would be living lives where we're trying to live and not really enjoying life. Or we're trying to do something, but something doesn't really matter. Because without a purpose that comes from Jesus Christ's death and resurrection in our lives, we are aimless, we are futile, we are Living without any hope. I thought about the Samaritan woman. Story in John chapter 4 where she comes to the well and she has had multiple husbands. And she gets to the well and Jesus says, can you get me something to drink? And she says, listen, why are you talking to me? And he says, well, go get your husband. And she says, what? I don't have a husband. And he says, I know you don't. You got you've had five and you got somebody now you're living with. That's not your husband, but that's not the point. And she says, let me ask you a question. Most of you know the story. If you don't, go to John chapter 4 and read it. And at the end of the discussion, she says, you are the Messiah. You are the one that we have been waiting for. You are God's son. And what I love about that is this woman who has lived an aimless life. Now, I don't know about you, but generally when someone has five husbands and is living with somebody that's not, that has some issues in life. I'm not. That's just the way it is. Amen. What does she do immediately after Jesus tells her who she is, after she accepts who he is? What does she do? She goes to the town and starts proclaiming who he is. Her life has been given purpose. It's finished. Your life's not futile. Here's the second thing. It's finished. Here's the other ramification. Your failures are not fatal. How many of you in here have ever failed at something in life? Some of you didn't raise your hand. You just failed. All right. 
You ever messed up something? I don't talk about tests, but you just messed up something. You, you broke a promise. You broke a vow. You couldn't make it work. You didn't deliver. Anybody here, how many of you ever had somebody fail on you? Yeah. It happens, right? We're humans, what we say. To err is human. That's who we are. But Scripture teaches us if that's just who we are, then the future is bleak because we have no hope of anything ever changing outside of Jesus. But the amazing news of the cross, it is finished, is that our debts have been paid. For followers of Jesus Christ, your debt has been paid. I want you to imagine right now the biggest debt or failure you have ever had in your life. Maybe for some of you, goes, that's not hard. I just paid a bill on it yesterday. Whatever it is, can you imagine the excitement of getting a letter in the mail that says, it's done, it's finished, you're over. What is that secret thing you've been holding inside from family, from friends, from close relatives, from co-workers? What if that was brought out in the open and said, it doesn't matter, it's done, it's over, it's finished, you're forgiven. I don't care what you've done here today. I, I don't care what you've done in your past. I don't care who you are. Scripture teaches that if you follow Jesus Christ, accept his forgiveness, it is done, it is over, it is forgiven, and you don't have to pay the eternal consequences of the sin in your life. That, my friend, is good news. I don't know what you've done, but I know enough of my life to know that without Jesus, I have no hope. I think about the woman caught in adultery, brought before Jesus and thrown at his feet, who moments earlier had been in the midst of major failure, who Jesus looks at and says, your sins are forgiven. Go and sin no more. You think she was elated that day? Her life was literally given back to her. Her soul was regenerated because of the saying of Jesus. And here's the last thing. It is finished. Your death is not final. It doesn't matter who you are here today. Can I tell you something that's going to happen to you? If Jesus doesn't return, you're going to die. Then get any amens on that, but it's true. Right? Nobody who has ever lived, has ever lived without dying, except for a couple of strange examples in the Old Testament. None of your friends have or will. It's coming. That's despite thousands of years of making every attempt to not die. You realize every time you go to the doctor, it's an attempt to not die. Right. Next time you go to your doctor, say, I'm just here because I don't want to die. Right. Right. Every pill you take is an attempt. To not die. Or at least not to feel like you're dying. Amen. But guess what? You're going to die. That's what you came to hear today, right? 
But the great news of it is finished is that even though Jesus proclaims it is finished, that's not the end of the story. Because the end of the story comes a couple of days later when he doesn't stay in the tomb, but conquers death for you and for me and rises again from the grave and tells us that for believers in Jesus Christ, that our death is not the end. It's the beginning of a life unimaginable. One day we are going to shed this body. One day diets are going to be done. Doctors are going to be out of business because we are going to be completely whole and healthy and more alive than we have ever been in the presence of our Savior and God the Father. That's why we love I'll Fly Away, right? It's okay, clap. That's why we love it. And that's why one little word changes everything about life. And if somebody told you that today I could, if you imagine somebody on a self-help book saying, I can cure for you today futility, your failures, and death. After laughing at them, if they proved it, it would be a million seller. Well, it has. It's called Scripture. But the truth is that our lives are radically different because of one word uttered from a cross by Jesus. To Telestai, it's over, it's done, it's complete. The debt is paid. The sacrifice is perfect. So here's my question to you today. Have you believed in and accepted the gift that comes from that word? Are you a follower of Jesus Christ? Have you been saved by the power of the blood he shed and the resurrection that followed. Because if not, futility and failure and death are the end game. And nobody likes an unhappy ending. But if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, your life is not futile, your failures are not fatal, and your death is not final. You get to enjoy the only possible happy ending to your life. Let's pray together.